Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. Hello, hello, everyone. How's it going? I usually ask that question to Devin, but I don't have him here today. This is a pretty uh, unique episode in the sense that it's the first time that I'm recording this intro without Devin. We are super excited for him. He just had a little baby girl. So major congrats, Devin, if you tune into this episode while you're on pat leave. We miss you on Reveal, uh, but... The show does go on. So I am thrilled to welcome Sahil Mansouri, who is the CEO of Bravado, to reveal this week. He has a really interesting uh, experience. He has been a sales rep and a sales leader for many years. And, you know, an amazing stat. He has zero annual quotas that he's missed. He's hit 51 out of 53 of his quarterly quotas over his career which is tremendous, you know, that requires a a round of applause just for that. But as you're going to hear in this episode, he is kicking off a movement and he is mission-driven to kill sales quotas. Some of you may be kind of taking a step back or pausing in the middle of your walk, like what, why, how? We're going to get into a lot of discussion and conversation on why this could possibly make sense. So, you know, as I mentioned before, he's the CEO of Bravado, which is a leading B2B sales professional network. They have over 70,000 B2B sellers on their platform. So check that out. And I do have to say a really funny story. As we were recording this episode, Devin and I were sitting on Reveal. We're waiting for Sahil to get ready. And we're waiting and waiting. And, you know, he had to step away for a moment. And so we wondered, hey, where exactly, where is Sahil? It's been, you know, a few minutes. And then we could hear some whispering coming from the Zoom. Uh, you know, we could hear his voice quietly. Devin, Sheena, can you hear me? And apparently he got locked out of the office and was stuck in the stairwell, stairwell of his office building. We were cracking up. He was such a good sport. He was luckily able to get back into his office and we recorded this episode, but major props to him for getting right back on his heels after being locked out of his office for 10 minutes and jumping into this, uh, into this episode. So that was a little funny story to kick this episode off with. So with that, here's Sahil. Sahil, thank you for joining us. We always have a good time when we talk. Now we can do it kind of a quote unquote officially for the podcast. So thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for having me, man. So excited. Huge fan of you, Sheena, the Gong team. This is going to be fun. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm flattered already. Um, And before we get into, you know, kind of the meat of things, me and you have a lot in common and that we have a big life change coming up. So I know that in a couple weeks, you'll be welcoming a new baby into the family. 
Uh, me and my wife are also expecting around the same time, so congrats. And by the time this releases, we'll, we'll probably both be dads by then. But I'm curious, what are you most looking forward to when it comes to being a dad? Pretty much everyone I've ever met uh, has told me that I was born to be a girl dad. And uh, my wife is we're both on the spectrum of you know if we if we happen to have a kid and as long as the kid is healthy that's all that matters but i've really really wanted to have a girl and i'm super excited to to be welcoming a daughter i'm just really excited to try and raise somebody who uh you know, I think today's world, we've gotten to a place where people are finally uh, coming around to the notion. If, I mean, and there's still a lot of progress to be made for sure, but people are really starting to embrace the fact of equality in the workplace and, and becoming aware of gender bias. And like, I'm just excited to raise a badass daughter. And I think you're going to make a great dad too. And we're hopefully our kids are going to be friends for many years to come. I would love that. That would that would just bring everything full circle and make me so happy. <laughs> well, that's awesome, man. C- congrats again. I'm very happy for you. Yeah, well. major congrats. I Thanks. feel special to be on this call with two uh, future dads. Well, you're uh, going to be giving us advice too as well because you're a pro. <laughs> I am still figuring it out. I was just telling Devin on my drive here to the grandparents' house, I had three children in the back. I was driving, and one of them vomited while I was driving and I was on a work call. So those are the kinds of things you have to look forward to. <laughs> I, that, you have three kids, Sheena. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's fun. It's a handful, but fun. How old are they? Seven, five, and two. Wow. Yeah. Bless your soul. So, yeah, it's interesting times to have that. But speaking of family, I read that when you first chose to go into sales, which is pretty early in your career, um, it, the profession had a bit of a negative stigma in your family. And I think you have been able to get your family to come around and, and see the value of sales and appreciate it. What do you think made them change their minds? Yeah, you know, that's so the way I got into sales initially was I was working on the Obama campaign and had been there for two and a half years because I was early, you know, I'd kind of worked my way up a little bit. Um, and when Senator Obama became president Obama in 2008, I was offered a job in the white house and two days before inauguration, uh, you know, my pops had a heart attack and, uh, and, you know, he wasn't, people, everyone thought he was going to die. He didn't die. He's still alive, but he's had a lot of health issues. And, um, you know, so I, I basically was, uh, kind of forced into a career in sales because I needed to be the you know primary breadwinner in our, in our family. Um, and that, uh, experience was, uh, you know, obviously jolting as a 20 year old, but on top of that, um, you know, was the fact that, uh, my parents growing up my dad was sick a lot, like we didn't have very much, but the one thing they had was like, you know, their little golden child who was one day he's going to make us proud, you know? And when you're an Indian child an immigrant child, you know, I think it's common among many, uh, kind of Asian Israeli backgrounds, you know, you have your choice of professions. You can be a doctor, you can be an engineer, you can be a lawyer. Um, and somehow salesperson doesn't always make that list. And so when, when I told my parents I was in sales, they're like, beta, that is not a real job. That is just for white people. You know, like they were like, so (laughs) they're like, like, so shocked, you know, they're like, and when I told my, my, my peers, when I told my, my friends from high school, they're like, 
really? Like you're in sales, you know, like it was, it was seen as if like, you know, I'd failed. I'd been voted most likely to succeed in high school, like as if that means anything. Um, And, and uh, you know, it was kind of a joke that like all I amounted to was a salesperson. Um, And I think that has stuck with me for many, many years and has been something that I think requires us it's it's an obligation that I have to change that perception of sales because it's not that. I think it's the best career in the world. I think it's a universal skill set. I have so much passion and love for sales, um, but it's not always practiced in the best ways and it's not certainly not perceived in the best of ways. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to make the profession better. And that's what I d- dedicate my life's work to at Bravado. I, I love that story. I really do. And uh, I can really respect it. And, and now if we fast forward, you're the CEO of, of Bravado. You've got a community of sales professionals that have grown to over 70,000, which is really impressive. How does your approach to sales, that passion of sales, come to light through your guys' mission statement at Bravado? Yeah, our mission at Bravado is to put customers first. I think every sales professional knows that the heartbeat of sales is to put customers first. You are the advocate, the, 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 the person who is deeply invested in their success, because if you're not, you're going to be out of the game real quick. I haven't met a lot of salespeople that have been successful in their careers without driving towards customers, without obsession over making their customers successful. And yet that's not the way that sales is viewed, is it? If you think about, you know, HubSpot did a, a study a couple of years ago that came out where they asked, you know, what are the characteristics of salespeople when they ask buyers? The number one word was pushy. Two, well, two was aggressive. Three was self-interested. Four was commission. So these are the attributes that we think of when we think of sales and you think of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross and always be closing and Wolf of Wall Street and, uh, you know, boiler room. These are the role models of sales. And so for me, I think that it's about darn time that we had a different role model for sales, a different perception of the profession. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of end with one last point on this. Uh, when you talk to um, uh, recruiters or look at job descriptions for sales, what are the attributes that we hire for in a sales team? We're hiring for people who never take no for an answer, who have a lot of hustle, a lot of grit, a lot of stamina, who can bang down doors. And then you ask customers, LinkedIn just released their state of sales 2020 survey. Number one thing that a customer wants from their sales professional is someone they can trust. They want someone patient. They want someone kind, someone empathetic. Where are those qualities on a JD for sales? Where are those attributes painted on a wall? I've read a lot of take, you know, no excuses. You you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take, you know, a lot of machismo in our profession. And I think it's deleterious. I think it's toxic. And I think it sets us up with the wrong mentality for our profession. So when you ask, you know, what is Bravado's mission and what do we stand for? It's to try to unify those sales professionals who think that the job of sales is to really serve their clients, not to go out there and bang down doors and rah-rah their way to hitting quota. Where do you see this shift in mentality of what these qualities and attributes for sales professionals should be? Where is that shift going to come from? Is it coming from existing sales leaders, from HR teams? And particularly for companies where there is already an existing sales culture. 
that may have been established 20 years ago because mm-hmm. it's an established organization. How do we encourage that uh, evolution and how you think about their own sales folks and the new ones that they hire? Um, it's a great question uh, because it's not enough to point fingers at the, at the root cause of things, but to find solutions. And I believe that deeply. Um, the answer is really obvious though. It's only going to come from one place. It's only going to come from customers. Sales organizations, companies seek to do whatever they can to help their clients. And where we used to be as a, as a profession where, you know, let's talk about how sales got this way. It's because once upon a time, the marginal cost of a bad customer experience was virtually nothing because the customer who had a bad experience and didn't buy versus the customer who had a great experience but didn't buy didn't matter. Either they bought or they didn't. And then the customer that bought and was really satisfied and then the customer that bought and was really unhappy that they made the purchase and had a lot of regrets was the same. They bought. It's the old, once you drive the car off the lot, it's not my freaking problem anymore. Um, And the software used to be on-prem. It used to be enterprise 10-year agreements, you know, buy it and then off you go. Well, that's not the world anymore, is it? Everything now is like month-to-month contracts, free trials, try it before you buy, uh, integrations. And now customers have a voice for the first time because there's G2 Crowd, there's Captera, there's Trust Radius. And so for the first time, the internet has given voice to the customer. So if you have one client that you sell to who has a bad experience and they go on LinkedIn and they post about it and they go on G2 and they post about it and they go to Trust Radius and Captera and post about it, you're going to lose 50 more customers because of it. So now you can't afford to have a bad customer experience as a company because it's going to deleteriously hurt your revenue and your brand and your business in the future. Not to mention the fact that because of month-to-month contracts and kind of making it easier, faster, better to buy software, once upon a time when you bought software, you were locked in for like 10 years, you know, because someone came and installed that thing onto on, on-prem. Well, today it's just like, you know, download something. If you don't use it, just delete it or, you know, lose your license or whatnot. And so you have to invest in customer success. And so the way we've been doing that is we basically built up these big CS orgs to support that the sales team is selling. Instead of trying to fix the problem fundamentally, which is to encourage the sales team to think about customer success in their approach. And I think eventually what's going to happen is we're going to realize that the role that we think of today as customer success and the role we think of today as sales engineer, like those are the roles of salespeople. The person who quarterbacks the deal, the person who's like managing the relationship, those people are dinosaurs. You know, those are the people that will go from sales. If you don't have deep industry expertise, if you're not able to be deeply technical about your product and actually get in there and help your clients solve problems, if you're not able to roll up your sleeves and actually deliver success for the customer, you're not going to make it in sales. So what I, so Sheena, to answer your question, where's the change going to come from? It's going to come from the customer. I I think that's super interesting. Um, You know, kind of putting the power and the voice in the customer's hands, which it should have been all along, but the tools and the technology was not there at that time. Um, you know, I think it's going to, it's, it's, has already caused a lot of companies to change their ways of use, as you've said, but we're still quite far away from that. Yeah. I, I think we're, I think, but I think we're getting closer every mm-hmm. day. I think every day that goes by, companies are starting to awaken to the fact that their sales teams need to be deeply aligned with the way the value of the product and need to be 
deeply customer first. And the reason for that, again, is just blindingly obvious. Like churn is such a killer for every company. You know, you can, once upon a time, we had Groupon and Box and Salesforce that were organizations that just focused on top line growth right? Zenefits, like these orgs just kept growing and growing and growing. No, didn't matter about retention. All that mattered was that you kept growing. And now look at who the heroes are. It's Slack, it's Zoom, it's Notion, it's Figma. It's companies whose customer success teams, whose, whose retention rates are so high. Look, you guys just raised a crazy round of funding. It's not because your revenues are there yet, but because of how much love your customers have for your product. That is the key to great sales success in the future. Because you know that companies who have customers that talk like that are the ones who are going to be successful in the future. But sales teams aren't comped on that, are they? You're not comped as a sales rep. If you close a deal for a million dollars versus closing a deal for 750,000, the rep that closes a deal for a million bucks is going to make more money, make president's club, get you know put up on stage. But if the customer who bought that million dollar software in 10 months churns and becomes a detractor for your business versus the one who bought for 750 becomes a reference client on your website and actually helps you win business in the future by being a reference customer, like the second customer is way more valuable to the company. And yet sales teams' incentive structures don't reward that. And I think that's what needs to change. Have you seen any companies that have done a great job in kind of restructuring that and, and putting that uh, as a priority for their sales orgs as well? It's happening all over. It's happening everywhere. You know, I, I see it in conversations with sales leaders at Notion. I see it at conversations with Monday.com has no commissions for any of their sales reps. Uh, HubSpot just went to a new model where NPS score and retention rates are big factors in driving a sales professional's commission. Brian Halligan, the CEO of HubSpot, publicly traded company, has been on record talking about how he thinks commissions are, are you know, the bane of how sales organizations are set up and that he doesn't believe in them. And so, you know, we're customers of HubSpot and I have witnessed firsthand the customer servant attitude that they bring to the table. Um, and I'm an advocate for them uh, because they've treated me right instead of trying to hunker down and like optimize every last dollar out of me, which is what I feel like a lot of companies do. All right, everyone. In every episode, we have a data breakout or a quick sidebar to look at the data. Sahil believes that the sales profession must be transformed from the ground up to truly thrive in this modern economy. And he says that killing quotas is the key to making that happen. He believes that quotas incentivize leaders to push to close deals too soon, pressure their buyers, and even cut prices. According to a study by Inside Sales Labs, salespeople close three times as many deals at the end of the month as during the rest of the month, but they also lose 11 times as many. It turns out that the end of the month push coincides with a 51% decrease in overall win rate. Reps are also less effective at closing the right deals with appropriate pricing at the end of the month, with deal size declining by a whopping 35%. That's an estimated $98 million per year in lost revenue for the average company in the study's data set. I want to go back to something you said around uh, you know, building trust, the number one thing that you know customers want. I think... At surface value, no one's going to argue with that, buyer or seller. Mm-hmm. And the example you just shared about, you know, changing comp plan is a fantastic idea, but it's not something that's going to be done tomorrow. Like, you know, if someone listens to this, they're like, you know, that's a, a long process. It's going to have to take some stakeholders. So I'm curious 
if you have any advice as what either sales reps or sales leaders can do more immediately, maybe it's things to start doing to gain trust with customers, or maybe it's things to stop doing to gain trust with customers. What do you think? First, foremost, transparent pricing. My number one gripe with how B2B SaaS is bought and sold today is that we don't have transparent, consistent pricing. Look, once I, I get it, you know, everyone's like, well, if we put our pricing on our website, then, you know, we'll have fewer leads or our customers don't put pricing on their website or I'm sorry, our competitors don't put pricing on their website. So why should we? And, you know, uh, price is just a negotiation. And I, I've heard every last thing about this, right? I, again, I've spent many years as a sales leader, many years as a marketing leader, and I'm the CEO of a company. Like I think about this all the time. The reality is simple. If you don't have consistent, transparent pricing, then every single deal eventually gets into the world of negotiating around price. And as soon as it becomes negotiation around price, what you end up doing is devaluing the product. And what you end up doing is setting up an inconsistent experience for your clients, for your customers. There is no reason. I know there's many excuses we can come up with. There is no reason why two customers that bought the same product for the same number of licenses in the same duration should pay different prices. There's no reason for that. It's unfair to the customer that paid more. And in today's world, you know, you only need to look to B2C in order to say where B2B is going because B2B is typically five to 10 years behind B2C. In B2C, uh, Peloton just did this. Super interesting. Friend of mine bought a Peloton. Two weeks later, they had a sale and uh, they discounted their price by 200 bucks. Peloton sent an email to my friend saying, hey, you paid, you know, X, but we just did a, you know, discount of 200 bucks. We just credited $200 to your bank account. Wow. Interesting. Like, I bought mine like two years that, ago. You think they sent that me that email? The, I should check. <laughs> that is the future. That is the future of sales right there because they don't want you to wake up and be like, well, that sucks. I should have waited two weeks to buy. And like that, like you never want to feel that way as a customer. Like, and, and I'll tell you what happens. I'm not going to name names, but there's a data vendor that we bought some data from that quoted me $40,000 as list price. Now I knew because we know, because we all do the dish that uh, 40 grand was not what I was going to pay. So I reached around to some friends of mine because, you know, there's this internet thing now. And I reached around to some friends of mine and I was like, hey, how much did you pay for it? Because I knew they'd, you know, who they'd sold to. Uh, one friend said 21K, one said 19, one said 18. I was like, cool, I'm going to need to pay around 20. Got it. Eventually I ended up paying 16. I then told my friend who got it for 18 that I got it for 16. He called them back and then they had to credit him two grand and paid it for 16. And like, you know what's funny about that story is that if they just put 20,000 on the website and said to every person, hey, 20 grand is the price, buy it or leave it, we all would have bought it for 20. And so they actually lost revenue that they could have claimed because they had to, they discounted one deal and then they had to discount another and now it's unfair. And like, you know, it causes more friction. Um, and so I think that uh, this happened in the car industry right? Where every car dealership played games. And then along came true car and true car made it completely transparent how much you should pay for a car. And all of a sudden it was gone, right? Every person walks into a car dealership knowing exactly how much they're going to pay within a $500 band for a vehicle. And here's the funny part of that. True car is a really successful, massive business. 
that should have never existed. True car should never have existed. This should have just been table stakes, right? But instead, because car companies treated customers like this, another company was able to come and start taking margin and taking deals and taking power away from the companies. The same will happen to B2B. Do you think that in 10 years, we're going to still be playing games around pricing with people? Like, that is crazy. We are already starting to see the shift here. And one day, every company is going to have its price, and it's going to be transparent, and they're going to need to be consistent. Because if they're not, then their, their customers are going to find out, and they're going to be pissed. And so either you lead, for, again, customers are going to pull us forward. Either we embrace that, which is going to be inevitable, or we resist it, and we allow other companies <clears throat> to take our lunch. I think that's where I see, you know, a, a big portion of change. I was going to play devil's advocate without saying the phrase devil's advocate because I know everyone hunkers down whenever you're like, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. Yeah. Everyone's like, all right, let me get the gloves on. Like, let's do this. But my my thought was, OK, if I'm in a competitive market yeah. and uh, or maybe I'm maybe I'm buying from a competitive market. Right. And it's like one one team is saying 40 grand and then I get to dance and negotiate. Right. And then another rep. Sahil is telling me it's 20K. And then I go, okay, well, what about the discount? And you're like, it's 20K, right? So you've got one person over here who's willing to negotiate and then another person who is saying, kindly, take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. I feel like buyers, and sometimes, and I've sold to salespeople a lot, salespeople, you know, sales leaders love to negotiate. <laughs> if anyone loves the dance, it's uh, it's revenue leaders in buying software. And so I, I just wonder, like, do you think, there, the temptation seems very real to bend, right? If, if I go to you and I'm like, well, these other guys, I'm going to go buy from them because they're, they're showing me they want to earn my business. They're, they're negotiating. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I guess like, how do you combat that? Like how, you know what I mean? It's basically like this level, this high level of temptation to win the customer in the moment. Is your advice kind of just stick to your guns and, and just play out this strategy very disciplined? No, my, my advice is that you should be winning deals because of the value you create for the customer, not because you're willing to bend on price. The, the company has the extra $5,000, Devin. Okay, like no, no company buys something for twenty grand instead of twenty five grand because, because the $5,000, it's not coming out of my pocket. Like my company has money, you know, like it's not a dollars and cents thing. The reason we bend on price is because we don't know how to lead with value. If we knew how to sell with value, then we wouldn't need to bend on price. Like, you know, you know who doesn't bend on price is Zoom. Zoom doesn't bend on price. You know why? Because everyone needs to buy their software because it's really freaking good. And they're like, sure, you can go buy WebEx if you want. Like no one wants to go do that. So here we are on Zoom, right? And so the thing is, if your product's great, then you don't have to negotiate. And if your product's not great, then you're going to have to negotiate a lot. Save yourself the effort and just invest back into your product. I think that like far too much emphasis is placed on the sales motion, not enough on the value that customers get. The job of a sales team, I've said this many times, you know, the job of a sales team is to take existing demand that existing demand, not creating new demand, existing demand for a product that works and convert that into revenue. That is the job of a sales team. The idea that a sales team is supposed to create demand when none exists, or the idea that the sales team is supposed to sell a product that doesn't create value because of price or revenue or whatever is archaic. It's it's asinine. You know, I wrote about this 
um, uh, recently, Zoom's revenue in Q from Q1 to Q2 doubled, from Q2 to Q3 doubled again, and their stock price went from eighty to like three hundred. Um, is that because their sales team like did like Sandler training in Q1 and now all of a sudden they like got 200% better at objection handling? Is it because they fired their VP of sales and brought a new one on and now all of a sudden they're like, you know, 2X the performance? Or is it because there's a global pandemic that's forcing everyone to work from home and Zoom has the best freaking product on the market and we all remember what it was like when we used to use GoToMeeting for, for sales demos and no one wants to go back to that shit. So everyone buys Zoom because it has the best product and there's a massive amount of demand for that product. That's what creates revenue. And this obsession that the sales team is responsible for revenue is misleading. The sales team is not responsible for revenue. The sales team is responsible for taking existing demand of a product that works and solves a user's problem and converts that into revenue. You cannot get revenue without the existing demand, which is the job of marketing, and a product that works, which is the job of the product design engineering team. The sales team will fail. And what we have done is we've shortcut creating demand because we're like, oh, we don't need demand. We'll just cold call. <laughs> we don't need a product that works. We'll just negotiate on price. And these shortcuts are what is leading to the 98% of software companies failing. This is why most companies come, they have a little moment and they die. It's because at the end of the day, building a company is really hard. It's not easy. It's not like, oh, yeah, we hired some great salespeople, you know, did some objection handling training and now built a great pitch deck and a script. And, you know, now all of a sudden we're like closing a bunch of deals and our company's successful. I wish it worked that way. Man, that would be great. I have to ask a question that might put you on the spot. And we I can cut it. it out if you don't like it. No, no, you ask me. I, you don't need to cut anything out. <laughs> Does bravado negotiate on price? It's a fair question. And the answer to that is super simple. No, we don't. Uh, we, we, you know, I don't, I don't mind answering any question because if I don't live my values, then, then that's, then that would be crazy. In fact, I believe that salespeople shouldn't have quotas. We just launched our first paying pro paid product to the market. The price is the same for every single customer, 10% service fee on every transaction on Bravado. It's transparent. Everyone can find it and see it. Uh, 10% service fee on every transaction. It's a marketplace model. So the price fluctuates, it kind of like Uber, you know, you're like, there's no one price for Uber. It's like, depends on how far you're going and stuff like that, you know, <laughs> but, there's a, but there's a Uber's fee is consistent, right? Uber doesn't take 20%, doesn't charge you a 20% fee and charge me a 15% fee or whatever, you know, Uber's fees, Uber's right, fee. Right. It's the same thing on Bravado. Like our fees, our fee, we pay, we charge 10%. The, the, uh, the comp plan for our team is zero commission. That is not what our team is measured on. Our sales team, which notably is two people, so we're early in the days. Mm -hmm. Our sales team is measured on customer success. Their job is to optimize for time to value. So when someone signs up for the Bravado Marketplace, their job is to get that person three successful intros. What we have is like a warm intro marketplace. So like a company can come to us and say, hey, I want a warm intro into these target accounts. We connect them to salespeople that have existing relationships and we broker warm intros for them. So it's like a scalable way to get warm intros as a replacement for cold calling or cold outreach. And so we, the, the, the sales rep on the deal 
she is measured off of how long it takes for us as a company to get three successful warm intros. So her job is to fight with the product team, the engineering team, the design team, in order to make sure that, that those customers are seeing value within 10 days. That's my benchmark. Within 10 days, I want a new customer to get three successful warm intros. She's benchmarked on renewal. How many customers stick around past the first month? How many customers stick around past the first three months? Because it's month to month. There's no long-term contract. How many stick around past six months? How many stick around past 12 months? For every one of those benchmarks, there's additional kind of like uh, recognition that she will get at the end of the year uh, as part of her bonus payout. And the last thing that she's measured on is customer delight. So I survey and interview our customers on a quarterly basis to ensure that they're getting value, that they're satisfied with the service they're getting. And I want to hear from them and hear that, that uh, our team is doing an awesome job. And that's how we've set up our comp plan. So this isn't something that, you know, I, I, I believe very deeply in practicing what I preach. And so, yeah, our pricing is transparent and our comp plan doesn't include commission and yet includes 100% payout of base. You know, we pay a super competitive salary because I believe that the salesperson is a partner to the team, not a mercenary that I'm hiring to go out and hunt customers or whatever. And then do you also have a CS team or is your sales team kind of playing that dual role? Yeah, it's a good question. Because we're early into it, we don't have a separate CS team yet, but we mm -hmm. will. We will have a separate CS team and the separate CS team will take customers over after they've hit three months on the platform, mm -hmm. but no customer can be handed over until they've already seen value in the product and have vouched for it. Yep. So the handoff between the sales and the customer success team will only happen after the customer renews beyond their third month. So they need to get through three renewal cycles with the customer before they can hand them off. It's interesting. I, I love how you have put into play all of your belief systems that we've talked about today. And the fun part about that is that we've got 12 clients so far. So it's early, you know, we're, we're just getting started. We're only 40 days into market. So it's early for us. Oh, we've, cool. got 12, we've, got, we've got 12 clients so far and 11 of them renewed past their first month and one didn't. And the one client that didn't renew, uh, we spent more time with that to try and understand exactly where we failed, where we came up short for them, took those practices, put them into our product roadmap and learned a ton from it. But you know who spent that time was a sales rep who sold the deal because she was the one who promised them that they would see value and they didn't. Mm. We weren't able to deliver for them. So she was on the hook for explaining to them that, that, that we weren't able to deliver value, which means you better believe that she was real annoyed with our product team and, and the fact that what she promised we weren't able to do. And that tension between our sales team and our product team is what will make a better company. Like it, it can't be like, oh, we missed revenue because like features and this and like, you know, like it's one cohesive unit. The sales team is the front of the house. The product team is the back of the house. The entire company is customer delight. And that's what we obsess over at Bravado. I was going to say the reason I asked that question when I did. Now I gave you the opt out to, you know, we got to edit it out because you're you're a friend of mine. But I asked it when I did because I think listeners were thinking the same thing. You know what I mean? Which is like whenever someone presents a, um, you know, a new idea, a new way of doing things, the the easy way is like, well, we're not, you know, we're not doing that, but you know, we're 
we're, we're thinking about it, right? So I, uh, I applaud that you're doing exactly what you, you said you are, or said we should be well, doing. And, and not only that, I've had be 12, 13 meetings since I started writing about killing sales quotas. I've had like 12 or 13 meetings with different CEOs, sales leaders who have asked for my input because they too believe that quotas are fundamentally creating the wrong set of behaviors and incentives. And I know at least three of them have changed their comp plans and have taken commissions out. So, so it's not, it's not like, you know, I'm not doing this in a vacuum either. Like companies are aware that this is a thing, you know, like I think everybody realizes what happens when you have a quota heavy commission heavy system. I think everyone knows what, what happens. Uh, sales reps push deals through that shouldn't be closed. They, they tend to want to bend on price, right? They tend to want to negotiate price, which devalues the product. They tend to, they tend to try to sell deals, um, either too soon or, or uh, too many products or tend to put apply stress or pressure onto the buyer in an unnatural way. Um, and then, you know, there's, the, there's an HBR article that came out. Deals that close in the last week of the month of a, sale, of a sales quarter, this is quarterly sales, the last week of a quarter have 11 times higher turn rate than deals that close in the first 11 weeks. 11, oh, wow, that's interesting. 11x higher churn for deals that close in the last week versus the deals that close in the first 11 weeks. That is interesting. It just makes logical sense. Yeah. Of course they do. Like, of course, if you pressured someone into buying the product and gave them a deep discount and did a bunch of things to get them on that they weren't sold on the value. So they turn versus someone who bought in the middle of the month when there wasn't that pressure because they were truly sold on the value. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Perfect. Well, I like a... Sahil is changing the world one one comp plan at a time, influencing <laughs> leaders to do the same. Uh, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> uh, so why don't we head into the final part of, of our conversation today? We like to ask every single sales leader that joins us on Reveal this question. How would you describe sales in one word? That's a good question. Um, I wasn't ready for that one. Um, I think the answer to me is trust. I think ultimately sales is about trust because the customer is trusting your word as a seller. The customer is trusting your company as a vendor and they're entering into a partnership with your organization. You can do business with people you don't really like. And that's possible. It's not great, but you know, the product's good enough. You know, you'll, you'll work with someone you don't really like. People don't work with people they don't trust. And I think that sales has always been a bit lacking when it comes to building trust. I think we say it a lot, you know, like, oh, we want to build trust with our customers. But our practices, the actions and behaviors that we take don't build trust. Because you know what builds trust is transparency. Mm-hmm. It's, it's honesty. It's uh, deep expertise. Uh, it's, it's humanity, you know, it's being human with people. And instead we love to be automated and we love to be opaque and we love to use our scripts instead of having true industry expertise. So we don't really build trust. We just claim that we want to build trust with our clients. And so I think we're in this world now where sales is all about trust. And so if there's one word that I would use to describe it, it would be trust. Well, that is so spot on and Mm -hmm. so fitting with our conversation today. Sahil, really, thank you so much for joining us uh, and and having this conversation with us today. Always a pleasure. One way to put buyers first is to be consistent and transparent about your pricing. If you're still on the fence about whether to publish a price list, ask yourself this. 
Why don't we already have transparent pricing? Are there specific reasons or are we just stuck in the status quo? If we were to make our pricing more transparent, what could the potential upside be? Would we be able to defend our pricing more easily, cut down the sales cycle, or even build a bigger prospect pipeline? Lots to think about here, but sometimes the status quo has to be questioned. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.